Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we see the story, we look at Bathsheba, and God wants us to have the eyes to see that she is far more important than just the physical beauty of her body. She is made in God's image and in his likeness. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sarah McNabb, and I have been attending Gateway for about three years now, and I serve on the tech team on Sunday mornings. Today's passage today comes from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with, him, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman, woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will, do, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to, the, to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then, with, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Jacob, Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. The messenger set, up, messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned her, for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good morning. If you haven't done so already, I really want to encourage you this morning to have your Bibles in front of you. So grab 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, look there at verse 1. We're going to march through that in just a little bit. Uh, while you're looking for that, this morning we are looking at what is perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba. But I, I want to convince you of something right on, right on the front here, that generally speaking, we look at this as a story with, with binoculars. We see it as a terrible story, an atrocious story, a sad story, but we see it as something that's happening over there, not really something that we ourselves could get caught up in and learn from. And so, I want to share with you that I have the unenviable task this morning of doing three things. Number one, of convincing you that you are a lot worse than you think you are. Like, you're welcome. Number two, convincing you that many of you don't think so. You don't think that about yourself. And, and then three, that you should be convinced of that. So it's going to be a really encouraging morning for us all this morning. Be praying for me. Uh, this is the challenge when it comes to a text like this. I was talking with uh, a few uh, men who are members of Gateway just this past weekend. We were talking about the fact that, like, when do we get to see ourselves as part of David in the story? Because I keep telling you, you're not like David. You're, you're not David when it comes to David and Goliath. You're like Israel that's up on the hill. Well, good news for you. You finally get to associate with David today, but it's the story of David and Bathsheba. So here's the challenge that I think many of us are faced with when we look at this story. This story is in your Bible to show you in remarkably vivid detail what every single human heart is capable of, including yours. What every human heart is capable of, including yours. So let me ask you a bit of a, a dark question to get this started off. Do you think that you could ever reach a point in your life where you deliberately plotted someone else's murder? Could you do that? And I think most of us, we would say, well, absolutely not. I could never do something like that. Not in a million years. And yet, what is going to be revealed in this story is that we are so woefully blind to our own sin nature the traitor within that compels us oftentimes to be just like David. In fact, I think you could summarize uh, this entire chapter with the words of James, the half-brother of Jesus, when he says this in James chapter 1. He says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. To death. That's the formula. That's the power of sin. And so everything that we're looking at today is a life or death issue. And this chapter is meant to be a warning to all of us. We have to see ourselves in the story. And because there's enough shock and awe in this entire chapter, I'm just going to give you my outline right up front, and then we're going to march through it together. Two things that we're going to look at. Uh, number one, the nature of our sin and how it leads to death. This is the question of what's wrong with the world? What's the problem with the world? Well, what we're gonna see is our sin. That's the problem with the world. Okay, well then how do we fix it? How do we go about rearranging the world so that it can become a better place? And we're gonna see once again, it's not gonna be by our own human efforts. It's not gonna be through David, but it's going to be through a true 
and greater king who is yet to come. That's what we're going to see today, and then we're going to march through it together. So if you got your Bible, look at me with verse 1. It says this. In times when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, stop right there. We, we saw the whole sequence. Uh, Sarah read everything for us this morning. And we're going to see four things about the nature of sin and how it always invariably leads to our death. And here's the very first thing that we see with David. He is disengaged from the battle. He's not off into battle. And the same thing happens to every single one of us before we are tempted to live into our sin. And this is the way I put it in your note sheet. It always starts with what I'm just calling spiritual apathy when we neglect our calling. When we neglect our calling. So look, for probably the first time in his life, David isn't leading his people into battle. He sends a proxy and he stays home. Now, remember with me, this is David, the strong and mighty warrior, the one who went up and fought against Goliath the giant, even when all of Israel's army were a bunch of cowards and they hid on a hill, they refused to fight on behalf of God, on behalf of their people, but David went in and he fought and he said, this victory is the Lord's victory. He's far greater than any other Philistine army. This is the same David who even when he was on the run against the maniacal King Saul, he started off uh, what I called the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man watch group against thieves and bandits. This David, the strong and mighty warrior, is now David the relaxer. He stays home. He relaxes. See, friends, when you disengage from the battle that God has for you, then I think that is the moment when we are typically most susceptible to the temptations of the flesh. Don't you think so? Isn't that the case? A sin of the flesh is always preceded by you being disengaged from the spiritual leader that God wants and intends for you to be. Some of you here, you might not see yourself as a spiritual leader, but you are. Another word for leadership is influence. Every single Christian has influence. You have influence in your marriage, in your singleness, in your parenting, in your workplace, in your family, in your community. Every single aspect of your life, you have influence. So here's what every single Christian believes. That you have been set apart. You have been called by God to make a kingdom contribution toward the kingdom that he is building. Not your own little mini kingdom, but the kingdom that God is building. And so the posture of our hearts is we have to remind our souls that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That I genuinely believe that life is short and eternity is long, and I want to live that way. And because of that, I want to pray the same way Jesus prays when I say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May I decrease, may you increase. God, it's all about you. I want to live my life that way. All about my passion for the kingdom of God. And that's how David used to be. He was so passionate about God's kingdom. But now he's relaxing. He's disinterested. And I want you to see that every single sin that we deal with always starts here. Don't miss that. Don't miss it. 
When you curtail your service to the Lord in search of other pleasures, here's what happens. The allure and the excitement of earthly things begin to make God-sized promises to you. Like, who put the desires of your heart into your heart? God did. God wants you to be a passionate person, passionate about his kingdom. But when you kick the can down the road, when you curtail your service to the Lord in pursuit of other pleasures, then they make God-sized promises to you. Whether it be money or business or sex or other relationships or whatever kingdom you're trying to build in your own life, those are the things that you suddenly get really passionate about. You get really excited about, but you're punting on your calling to be a kingdom builder in God's kingdom. So here's the principle. Think about it like this. It always starts this way. The main problem with spiritual apathy is not just a lustful body, like, oh, I'm just a little more lustful than the average person. It's not a lustful body. It's an empty soul. It's a bored soul. And it always starts with that. So for many of you, sexual sin doesn't start as a sin of commission, but one of omission. You've punted on your calling. You're bored. God has given you passion, and now you are looking for passionate desires to be fulfilled through God's earthly created things, and they will never satisfy your soul. They were never meant to do that, and yet that's where it leads. That's the reason why, friends, uh, Jesus makes some really strange and enigmatic statements. I think one of the biggest ones is from Mark chapter 8. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life with everything they're trying to build in their little earthly kingdom, they'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel... They're going to save it. And so self-denial and service, they bring true satisfaction to our souls because that's the way God made us. He made us with that in mind. And so I really don't want you to miss that this story that we just read about, this is the reason we wanted to read practically the entire chapter. I want you to see the end in mind, the story that leads to temptation, then desire, then adultery, then murder, then a cover-up. It all starts with apathy. It starts with a bored soul. That's where it starts. And so please, please, please don't, don't miss that. And so not ironically, after spiritual apathy, it leads to the indulging of our eyes. The indulging of our eyes. What do we see next from the story? The second thing we see is he, David puts himself into a position where he's going to be tempted. This is verse 2. Look at this with me. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. The author just couldn't help himself. She's not beautiful. She's very beautiful. And so here's the scene. David gets out of bed. That means he's already in bed. So presumably it's the middle of the night. It's very, very late. And he's walking on the roof of his palace. This is kind of like the Old Testament version of uh, browsing the internet alone late at night with the incognito window on. This is where David is. He's kind of just looking around. He's, he's browsing. He points, he clicks, he clicks, he clicks again, and then he dwells. 
he dwells. Sexual sins, they, they don't often overpower you all at once, do they? Usually it's gradual. Usually it's something that happens over time. The temptation is generally more gradual, and then you become complicit with it. You're home alone, you're scrolling social media, you click, you find a link, you go somewhere else, you see something you shouldn't see, and then you dwell. That's where David is. That's the environment that he has put himself in. When David sees Bathsheba naked, instead of looking away, he indulges himself. And I want you to see that this, there's nothing new here. This is Genesis chapter 3 all over again. This is what Genesis 3 says. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and, get this, pleasing to the eye, desirable, very beautiful, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. And so a couple of observations here. David knew that to look and to dwell was wrong. Um, Adam and Eve, they knew that to look and to dwell was wrong. And a constant theme in Scripture throughout both the Old and the New Testament is a question to the believer, how will you live your life? Will you live your life by faith or by sight? That's 1 Corinthians 5. That's what Paul asks. Which way are you going to live your life? And very clearly, according to this story, David and Adam and Eve, they're choosing to live by sight, indulging their eyes, as opposed to by faith. God's saying, if you do this, it will lead to your own destruction. It will lead to the disintegration of your soul. It will lead to a path in which you dehumanize your neighbor and you also harm yourself. And we don't want to do that. And yet, look, it's so beautiful. It's so desirable. And that's where I want to be. And so, friends, here's my question. Where do your eyes wander? Maybe it's more akin to David in this story, and, and you struggle with sexual sins. But it's not just that. Those are not the only things that we have to be wary of. Maybe where your eyes wander is you want to be more successful in your business, or maybe you want to have the newest and the best stuff, the newest car, the newest house, the newest toys. Uh, maybe you think you're finally going to be happy once you get married or once you get out of the marriage that you're in. Or maybe you find that you're thinking, I'm going to be happy only as, and as soon as I go on that amazing holiday or I get that new house or I finally figure out the stock market or I build up my savings account so that I can retire on time or I have fantastic sex or I rank very high in my business and I'm a successful person. See, all of these things are allures to us that are the antithesis to the gospel. It's not as though um, good sex is bad. It's not as though being successful in your business is bad. Don't get the wrong idea. It's that if you are captivated, if your soul is captivated by these earthly things, they will not satisfy your soul. And God says so. What's, what's the uh, definition of idolatry that I've given you for four years? It's when you take a good thing, you make it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a broken and tainted and terrible thing. And that's the point of this story. That's what Jesus wants us to see within this story. The gospel is the antithesis of all that. The, the gospel offers you joy 
in Christ. And so if you follow your eyes, like Adam and Eve, or like David, then you are just going to be convinced one day that God and his promises are not good enough. They're not good enough. God's holding out on you. There's better things that he's kind of keeping off on the side, and you need to go after those things. So just think with me for a second about David. He never should have been there in the first place. He put himself in a position where he neglected his calling, where his soul was empty and bored, and then he feasted his eyes. But here's a principle I want to lay out before you, something to think about. I put it this way in your note sheet. With respect to indulging your eyes, it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Like if you encounter a grizzly bear and you have the options of running away or attacking it, unless you're Chuck Norris, you got to run away, okay? Like you got to get out of there. You don't fight that thing. You run. That's what you do. To quote Laura Dern from the hit, t- uh, hit, hit movie Jurassic Park, and she's got the velociraptor coming, run! That's what you got to do. Get out of there. It's interesting, uh, I found a quote this week from the reformer Martin Luther. I love this. He says this, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. I, I like that. I think it's cool. Stay away from the fire. Avoid it. Run from that stuff. And yet, what do we typically do? We're kind of like a fish looking at that really chummy water, and we're really enjoying it. And then we see a hook, but we see a beautiful, beautiful worm. I want that worm. Instead of running for our lives, what do we do? We lick it. We sniff it. We kind of do a 360 panorama of it. You got to get away from that stuff. And yet, we are attracted to it. For those of you who have been here the last four years, you know that one of my favorite authors is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, he's written a lot of books that he's very well known for, like uh, The Cost of Discipleship, Life Together, very well-known books. But there's one book in particular that's not very well-known. It's only 48 pages, and it's called Temptations. And it's about everything we're talking about today. And I want to read a quote from his book that I find just so compelling. It's a little bit long, but I think it encapsulates what we're looking at today. He says, In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire that is awakened with sudden ferocity. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. The flesh burns, and it is in flames, because again, our heads are made of butter. In this moment, God becomes quite unreal to us. What's the story in Adam and Eve? Did God really say, God's holding out on us? Desire envelops us in darkness and makes us forget God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there is only one command. Fight that thing. You know, go head to head against it. Do a panorama against it. Put together a good defensive plan and strategy to go out against it. Does he say that? No. Flee. Flee, run, flee youthful lust, flee worldly temptation, run. No human being has within them the strength to resist overpowering emotions. So I say to you again, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. It's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. 
And so we can't spend too much time on this, but I want to give you just one strategy to go home and think about. If you struggle with this, don't do nothing. You have to have a strategy. And I think the principle that we can walk away with here is you need to live your life as transparently as possible. Live your life as transparently as possible in every single area of your life. Your internet use, your business, how you spend your money, your devotional time, what's happening in your soul, in your heart, accountability partners. You need to live your life as transparently as possible. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. So I, I know we learn from examples, so let me just share with you some of the things that I do because my head's made of butter. Not because I'm all that, not because I'm strong, but because I'm weak. One thing that uh, Julie and I do is, um, we've done this since we've been here at Gateway. Every single year we sit down with governing council and we lay out our budget. They know what we spend and where we spend it. They don't demand that of us. We just, we just understand the principle that we want to live as transparently as possible. When it comes to social media usage or internet or passwords, Julie and I have all of each other's stuff. We trust each other 100% of the time, but our heads are made of butter, and so we want to live as transparently as possible. We don't want things to grow in the dark that are not good for our marriage, not good for our soul. I have accountability partners that I meet with every other week. Uh, we are all pastors, and, and we try to give much-needed accountability to each other. The point is, in every single area of my life, I try to live as transparently as possible. And I think I have a strong will most days. I just know the principle that Martin Luther is highlighting, that my head's made of butter. My head's made of butter, and so I want to avoid temptation. Now, let's look at this third thing we see. The third thing we notice is that David objectifies this woman. Look at verse 2 again. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Now, you have to see the, the genius of what the author is going to do next. You, I want you to hear this. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, why does the author say it that way? The author could have cho chosen to have the reporters come back and say, uh, her name's Bathsheba, and you are so right. She is so beautiful. And yet, there's an accounting of her status, her place. So here's, here's what we have to see. The author is reminding us that Bathsheba is not just someone with a very beautiful body, but also she's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. She might have been someone's mother. This is a person who loves and is loved and is deeply rooted in a community, and she is a person who is mature and who is in her own right far more important than just the physical beauty of her own body. But David doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care. In that moment, she's just an object to satisfy his lustful passions. And that's what we see next. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. And the Hebrew word here is literally to take. To take her. And so the way David gets Bathsheba is the same way that many of you order pizza or KFC. 
You go on your app, you know, or you go on Uber or whatever app that you use. You place your order, and it arrives at your house. He takes her as his own, and then he consumes her. So this is the third thing that we see. Look at the progression. It starts with spiritual apathy, which leads to the indulging of our eyes. And then from indulging our eyes, it leads to the dehumanization of your neighbor. Dehumanizing your neighbor. If you think about it, some of the most terrible atrocities ever known to human beings always starts with dehumanizing someone or a a certain group. You think about Nazi internment camps against Jewish people. You think about Jim Crow laws. You think about many of the documentaries you watch on Netflix about uh, mass shootings and their motivation for doing so. It often starts with the, or it always starts with the dehumanization of other human beings who are made in God's image. And perhaps that's the reason why, friends, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we see this story, we look at Bathsheba, and God wants us to have the eyes to see that she is far more important than just the physical beauty of her body. She is made in God's image and in his likeness. You think of the story that we read a couple weeks ago, the story of Uzzah, and the the ark of God is falling. He tries to catch it, and God goes, boom, you're dead. Smites him down. The holiness of God in comparison to an unholy person. And then we get to the New Testament. What is the most sanctified, beautiful thing in the whole world? It's not an item. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's you. You are the only sacred edifice that God cares about. Human beings who are made in God's image and likeness. And so don't miss that point. And actually, it just hit me this week. I thought this was really interesting. I've never seen this before. That by the end of this chapter, David will actually uh, break all five uh, commandments on the right side of the table. So just look at this with me. Uh, Maybe some of you are not aware of this, but the way that the Ten Commandments are listed is the first five are with respect to the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with respect to your relationship with God. And then the next five are with respect to your relationship with your neighbor. And so it just, it hit me. David breaks all five in one chapter. You shall not murder. He's going to do that. You shall not commit adultery. He's already done that. You shall not steal. He's already done that. You shall not bear false witness. He does cover it up. You shall not covet. He's already done that. By the end of this chapter, he breaks every single one of them. And this is David, the man after God's own heart. And he breaks all the commands. Friends, Christians have a unique calling and obligation to promote the beauty and the vitality of human life of seeing each human being as someone who is made in God's image and likeness. And so once again, I don't want you to miss that this whole story starts with an Old Testament version of pornography 
It starts off with David gazing at her that leads to the objectification of her, which leads to the destruction of her family, which leads to murder, which leads to the disintegration of David's soul. It all starts with objectification. But I also don't want you to get the wrong impression. I don't want you to get the wrong idea to think we're just talking about sexual sins. We're talking about any time you choose to objectify your neighbor. You can do that through sexual sin. You, you can also do it by envy or gossip or slander. You can do it through coveting. Hating your neighbor is another way. Even apathy is a way that we cannot live into this command. Think about what James says in James chapter 2. He says, If anyone says to your neighbor, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Does that fulfill the command to love your neighbor as yourself? Here's a way of thinking about this. If I were you and you were me, how would I want you to treat me? And you can do that with literally anyone on the planet. You can do that with respect to a child who is still in the womb of his or her mother. You can do that with respect to the mother who doesn't know what to do on whether or not to have this child. You can do that when you see someone who is high on drugs on the street and they're not in their right mind. How would I want someone to treat me if I were that person? You can do that with any person that you interact with on the planet. How do I love my neighbor as I love myself? What does it look like to have such a firm conviction that I love God with all of my heart and I love my neighbor as myself, that I choose not to objectify the human beings in front of me who are made in God's image? How would that change the trajectory of our lives? And I think that's compelling. I think it's worth asking of ourselves. And so here's, here's a principle when it comes to thinking about this. It's much easier to objectify your neighbor when you don't see them as your neighbor made in God's image and likeness. So let's recap how every single human heart is capable of murder. It starts with punting on our calling. It starts with spiritual apathy. And then it leads to the indulging of our eyes and then it leads to the dehumanization of our neighbor. And ultimately, this is where it ends. Look again at James. James chapter 1, he says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And so that's the fourth point in your note sheet. Dehumanization always leads to death. It always leads to death. We don't have enough time to review all of this, but if you're taking notes... Consider writing down Matthew chapter 5. These are the commands of Jesus uh, while he's giving his Sermon on the Mount. It's that really strange story where he takes the law of God and then he elevates it. Where he says, you've heard it been said that you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already done the deed. You know that story? Or you've heard it been said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards your neighbor, you've already done the deed. And so once again, just like I started off this morning, I, I told you, here's, here's what I feel like is the great conviction that the Holy Spirit has put upon my heart to communicate to you this morning is to try and convince you that you are a lot worse than you think you are. And that you're unconvinced that that's true. And then finally, that you should be convinced that's true. That all of us are like, I could never do something like that. 
But here's the point. If you have anger in your heart towards your neighbor, you have already proven to yourself that you could commit murder. You know, it hasn't fully grown yet. Maybe in the right circumstances it wouldn't happen, but you're on that trajectory already. And if you... Um, lust toward another woman or a person of the opposite sex, you've already revealed to your heart that you can commit adultery. You've already done the deed. And so we have to see this, that we are far worse than we think we are. And so let's see how this plays out. Basically, David sends for Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. But then she becomes pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. Now there's consequences. What do we do with this? Well, now the whole world's going to find out that Bathsheba became pregnant when her husband was away at battle. But don't worry, David has a plan to cover that up. Verse 6. David sent word to Joab, that's David's battle commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send me Bathsheba's husband. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. He's just a buddy, you know. Good old buddy, old pal. How are things going, man? How are you doing? Just the friendliest guy ever. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's, uh, by the way, a Hebrew euphemism for go home and sleep with your wife. Man, you must be tired. Oh, you've been working so hard. Why don't you just go home, kick back, sleep with your wife? And so David, his strategy goes a bit like this. If Uriah comes home and sleeps with his wife, then everyone, including Uriah, will assume that the baby is his, and David's off the hook. No worries. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. David's plan is unsuccessful. We find out that Uriah, he is a noble man. He says, and we heard this already when we read through the whole chapter, the ark of God is under a tent right next to the battlefield, and so is my battle commander, so are my fellow soldiers. Surely I'm not going to go off and enjoy luxurious treatment when they're experiencing this. Do you know who he should remind you of? David. He's like a younger David. He has the same sort of convictions as David. But now the tables have turned. He says, I will not go home to my wife. He is a noble and honorable man. And then, for the second straight time, David says, why don't you stay one more night? He tries to get him drunk. He's like, get him loose. Then go off to your wife. Put your feet up. Sleep with your wife. Everything will be okay. For the second straight night, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And so David finally realizes that his plan is just not going to work, and so he has to change strategies. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. It was already sealed, so Uriah can't read it. In it he wrote, put Uriah on the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Uriah goes back to the battlefield unaware that he is carrying the sealed envelope that is his death sentence. All from a man who is noble and honorable and committed to the cause. And David stabs him in the back. Why? To cover up his own foolishness and his own sin. The end result of the story is that Uriah does die in battle. And then David quickly takes Bathsheba as his wife. And then when Bathsheba bears a son... 
David's son, everyone just assumes that they got pregnant on the honeymoon. And everyone's like, oh, wow, like what an amazing man, David. Surely he is a man after God's own heart. He even marries widows. Like he gets all this extra PR for being such an amazing guy. And you would say, that's how the story ends, but it doesn't. It ends with one more sentence, these chilling words from God, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now just remember with me one more time, who are we talking about? We're talking about David, right? We're talking about the man after God's own heart. We're talking about the anticipated king of Israel, the anointed one, the giant slayer, the good shepherd who refused so many times to take matters into his own hands, the one who authored so many of the books of the Psalms that we continue to read today. In fact, we read a couple of them this morning already. And yet, here's what David does. He takes one of his younger captain's wives, sleeps with her, murders the loyal, noble, godly man in order to cover up his tracks, all done by a man who wrote this in Psalm chapter 40. David wrote these words. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written within my heart. He meant that. He meant that when he wrote it. And yet he's still capable of this. How is that possible? What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us this. That the seeds of the most terrible atrocities and the capability of the worst possible deeds live right now in your heart. In your heart. See, here's the difficult challenge that I think every pastor is faced with when you come across a chapter like this. We like to look at stories like this with binoculars. But the reason why it's in our Bible, friends, is to be a mirror for us to see ourselves, not in the hero, not in Bathsheba, but in David. In David. That we are capable of doing the same things because of our sin nature, the traitor within. Like you think about all the stories in the Bible, of all the heroes that we think were, are, are in there for us to emulate. You think about Abraham, the father of faith. What's his story? Well, do you know that one of the things that he does is he constantly lies about his relationship with Sarah and his, his wife in order to save his own skin and puts her in harm's way? What kind of man, what kind of husband does something like that? Or you think about Jacob, who is later named Israel, the father of Israel, and yet he's constantly scheming and lying to get his own way? Or you think about Moses, who not only murders a man just like David, but he commits such terrible crimes that God says, you do not get to go into the land of promise with the rest of my people. You think about Peter, Rocky, whom Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And yet he denies Jesus publicly three times. And then there's David, the lying, scheming, adultering, murdering David. Do you think you're better than these men? Do you think if you were put in these positions that that you would do things a little bit better or a little bit differently? Because if that's the posture of your heart, then you have just revealed that you have taken one step closer toward doing exactly those things. 
Because the point of the gospel is not heroes to emulate like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Peter, David. But that their, their predicament is just like ours. That they're stuck in this problem. Remember the two questions we started with? What's the problem with the world? How do we go about fixing it? Well, here's the problem. We can't fix the world. Why? Because we're the problem. Because we're the problem. Do you see the predicament of our lives? And so if all that's true, if if I've convinced you of anything this morning, then I think you're left with one question. How can we fix it? What can we do? Because it seems to me that we we only have one of two options. Like, or at least God has one of two options. Number one, that he would smite us and wipe us off the face of the earth. Or number two, he would let bygones be bygones and he would just leave us to our own devices and we would just keep treating each other the same way ever since Cain and Abel. Those are the options laid out before us. How do we fix the problem? And if you're asking that question, then you're finally reading the Bible the right way. Put yourself for a moment in the shoes of Israel. We're going to see more on this next week. We're going to see how this whole story wraps up and concludes. But David was the anticipated, long-awaited king of Israel. All of Israel, they put all their eggs in the basket of David. He's our best. He's our brightest. He's our most noble. He's a man after God's own heart. And then when they finally discover the disintegration of his life, they say, if there's no hope for David, is there any hope for us? How is there possibly any hope for me if there's no hope for David? And that's our question too. And when you ask that question, I think you're finally ready to hear the answer to that second question. How do we go about fixing it? This story makes clear that we, and we've been hinting at this throughout the series, that we need a king who is far greater than David, right? A king more faithful, a king who will always act with integrity, who will not abuse us, who will not exploit us. We need a king who will make every wrong right, but who will also do so in such a way that he can make a way for me, a evil wrongdoer just like David. He has to find a way, a way when there was no way so that we can also be set free and re- be reunited with him and with one another. That's what we need. And yet this story, it's a beautiful story that highlights that we need a true and better king. And it's interesting, in this story we see a prefigured character of Jesus and his name is Uriah. Look at this with me. Look really closely. Do you know who Uriah is? This is one of the parts of the story that make this so tragic. Do you remember when David was on the run from his life against the maniacal King Saul, hiding away in caves. Everyone was after him. And then, as he was hiding away, he was with just a few dozen men who were committed to his cause. These men were later called his mighty men. And they were all in on David. They sensed that David had the anointing of God and they would put themselves in harm's way in order to protect David. 
Uriah was one of, God, one of David's mighty men. He's one of them. And so that's what makes the story so tragic. He's not just any guy. This is a man to whom David owed his life. And yet David still did that to him. He still did it. And so think about Uriah. Uriah was innocent and selfless. Uriah was loyal to David to the very end. Uriah was placed on the front lines in the fiercest part of the battle. He was told to charge into the face of death, and he did so without hesitating and without complaining. And in the end, he dies, not for his own sins, but for the sins of David. Does that remind you of anybody? Strangely, Uriah prefigures Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was the true mighty man, loyal to the end, who rushed into battle on our behalf when it was certain that he would die. And in the end, he died just like Uriah, not for his sins, but for all of our sins. In exactly the same way. And yet there's one difference, one key difference between Jesus and Uriah, and it is this. Uriah had that sealed envelope, and he did not know that it was his death sentence. But Jesus went to the cross knowing full well that we would betray him, that we would run from him, and that even after his death and his resurrection, we would keep spitting on that cross over and over and over and over again, and he went anyway. Why? Because he wanted to make a way when there was no way. He wanted to bring us back to himself. And it was the only way to do it. Do you see the gospel, friends? Do you see that Jesus is the true and greater Uriah, the one who comes to make all things new? And here's the good news, friends. Here's what this means. It means that there's still a place for you. That even in the midst, in the midst of your sinfulness and your brokenness, God doesn't cancel you. He won't do that because he has paid for your sins. He has paid for your brokenness so that you can be reunited with him. And there's only one question that remains. Are you ready to receive that gift? Here's what it's going to take. It's going to take you taking all the things that you've been clinging to, all those possessions where you place your identity in and to throwing them off to the side and then coming to Jesus with empty hands and saying, here I am, the wretched sinner that I am. Take me, Lord Jesus. Please, Jesus, take me as I am. I accept the gracious gift of God through Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that you would accept God's good and gracious gift. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.